you can now hear Movie Heaven Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favourite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad and in over 4 million car dashboards. You can stream your favourite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the app store. And please leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers that enjoy discussing movies and connected subjects, and we are on our second episode um, celebrating 50 years of Star Trek, uh, specifically looking at this time as to the movies 7 through 10, which focused on the Next Generation crew. And uh, really pleased to say I've got my uh, good friend joining us, Alex Brunning. So welcome to the show, Alex. Hi, right, thanks, guys. <laughs> Always good to have uh, have friends on. Now, obviously, um, we've worked together numerous times on various independent projects. But for the benefit of our listeners, Alex, maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what Star Trek means to you. I've always been sort of interested in filming. Um, I grew up in a village called Redbourne, which is uh, um, in Hertfordshire, which was well known for um, having all the uh, um, the basic uh, crews for all the films out of Pinewood and other places. Um, so I grew up on uh, a lot of the sci-fi. Uh, my dad knew uh, um, Jerry Anson's marketing guy, so I used to play with all the models from. Uh, um, Thunderbirds and other stuff uh, when they weren't being used on set. Um, so from, I don't know, from the age of five or six, I, uh, I was pretty much into sort of sci-fi. Um, I got into filming um, sort of quite late, um, sort of, what was it, early 30s. Um, did a film school uh, with the, uh, the Panico team, which was the, uh, the crew from the Monty Python films. I didn't, didn't realise you did Panico. I did Panico. Panico is great fun. Mm. Yeah. What, was, what year did you do it? God, that's a very good question. It's 2003. No, I did it in 98, so I was before you. You were before me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so were you at, um, uh, what facilities were you at? Um, we moved uh, around, but um, a lot of time we were actually in the West End. Um, was it in the Actors Centre? We did some in the Actors Centre, um, but at the time they were working with a couple of uh, um, a couple of post-production companies. Okay. Um, I think one of the sons of the guys was working. Yeah, that's uh, with, Bill and Ben Productions. That, that's right, yeah. yeah. So we, we spent a lot of time there. Um, I don't quite know why. <laughs> uh, even when we weren't doing editing stuff and post-production stuff, we kept using their facilities. But yeah, the Actors Centre as well. Mm. 
um, just where we did a lot of just the base lectures. Oh wow! I was it's, it's a small world. I mean, I I was there when they were based in Falkenberg Court, mm. and this is before it became part of the London Film Academy. Yeah, everything got sucked into that, didn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good, I suppose in some ways, um, you know, bigger, more, you know, bigger budgets, uh, larger faculty. But I quite like the Panico mm. sort of independence. Yeah, I, I did as well, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was a it was a good introduction into filmmaking because it it just it just sort of showed you what the basics was. You know, this is a camera, this is editing, this is writing. You know, this. I, I think so. Yeah, um, and they, especially the uh, the Doyle brothers, Julian and Bob. Yeah, yeah. So Bob, I had huge amounts of respect for. Um, across the board, a mm. great guy. Julian, I argued with all the time. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, I, Alex, argue? No, never. Come on. His, his, uh, um, his thoughts about directing. <laughs> um, yeah, and editing. Um, you know. but, but you, you've done a bit of everything, haven't you, Alex, in terms of filmmaking? You've had a, you've had a go at a bit of everything. Is that fair to say? I get yeah, I've done some writing, producing, um, done set design, um, done a little bit of directing, done quite a bit of editing, done some sound design, um, been on camera, done some DOP, um, lighting. Um, yeah. I know you've, you've helped me with a lot of my films <laughs> in terms of either editor or, or, or producer or helping somewhere on set. So, um, you know, which I really appreciate. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's. I think that's always been the thing about filmmaking, isn't it? It's it's the process itself that's enjoyable across the board. Um, although some jobs are a little harder than others, should you say? Yeah. So when were you first introduced to Star Trek? Well, my dad was a bit of a Star Trek nut, so um, they BBC repeated uh, um, the original Star Trek series in uh, was it seventy two, seventy three. Uh, how old was I? I was six. <laughs> um, so Dad would uh, sit me up and watch Star Trek episodes on the evening. Um, so I was from a very young age. I was sort of Star Trek indoctrinated by my dad, um, which I always thought was quite mad because it was the only sci-fi he enjoyed. <laughs> The rest of it was he liked his Robert Ludlum books and thrillers, um, but Star Trek he loved. So he sort of, uh, yeah, he would sit me up when I was absolutely dead to the world and make me watch Star Trek, which I loved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. From a very young age, I've always been a bit of a sci-fi nut myself. Uh, I read Asimov when I was nine. Um, sci-fi has always been a bit of a, a passion especially the written form, um, and occasionally cinema when they get it right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which, which has been rather hit and miss with the Star Trek, uh, <laughs> with, with, with the Star Trek movies. <laughs> Star Trek movies, it's, it's sort of a love affair though, isn't it? It blows hot and cold. Um, sometimes, you know, even, even when they haven't quite got it right, you sort of forgive them, don't you? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, um, I always kind of... Uh, for me, um, obviously, Star Trek's uh, always been 
important. Um, in fact, it's interesting. I, I, I was having a bit of a think about this the other day since we did the last one. And uh, much as I go on about, you know, film school and doing, you know, Cameron dissertations and mentorships and internships and all that sort of stuff, um, you know, back as early as, as, as nine years old, um, I did actually put on a play uh, at the at the school that I was at, um, based on Star Trek, and <laughs> uh, you know I didn't understand a lot about theatre or, or production at the time, but I actually sort of wrote, produced, directed this, and I um, and I played Kirk in it because <laughs> because uh, you, you know I have to say for all the stuff about William Shatner, I mean as a child kirk was was you know along with harrison ford and whatever kirk was was one of my you know childhood heroes and uh, i did used to sort of um run around with a with a yellow sweater on and uh, y- you know a plastic toy uh phaser and communicator most of the time and most of the kids at school thought i was totally weird but um it, this was obviously when trek was being sort of rerun uh shortly after the uh the, the first movie came out and uh, yeah, so I did actually, I remember that. Unfortunately, this was sort of before the days when uh, camcorders and stuff were commonplace. So unfortunately, I put that uh, that play on and uh, it, it sort of existed in that moment. But sadly, I mean, I don't think my my parents even have a photograph or anything of, of, of the bridge that we made and uh, and the crew. But uh, sorry, I've gone slightly off point. Uh, what, what I was, what was going to say about the forgiven bits and pieces about these films is I often sort of um, liken it to Bond films as well is, you know, in amongst that you get great films and then you get ones that aren't so good. But there's always elements that I enjoy, whether it be a particular set piece or a gadget or a, or a vehicle or there's a great villain or, or a particularly hot Bond girl or what, whatever. There's always usually something about it I like. And it's kind of the same with Star Trek, really. Even the, um, even the, 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 the films or episodes that aren't as good, there's, there's usually an element or, or something about it that I like and, and, and I just can't help liking. And uh, I think you hit the nail on the head, Alex, with, with the fact that, you know, even though some of the films are certainly problematic, uh, they usually do have their good points as well, even if it's just down to something like a, a design element or a good performance or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, or even just, a, you know, a, a wink and a nod you know, to, to the fans. I mean, it's something that Star Trek has always tried to do, hasn't it? It's always had its little elements of uh, uh, even after the original crew, we always wink and nod to them. Though, or Leonard Nimoy never went away, did he? So, um, so well, sadly, he has now, but yeah, well, now. <laughs> I'm sure they bring him back somehow. I mean, but yeah. yeah, unfortunately, it's 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 the thing with Star Trek. If you you like Star Trek, um, you like everything that they do. I mean, yeah. to an extent. Um, yeah. even Deep Space Nine was uh, enjoyable to some extent. I know Simon was a fan of Deep Space Nine, weren't you? Oh yeah, I was a big fan of it. I, was, yeah. I, 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 I really, I really sort of got into it, um, especially after Series Three. But then I definitely, uh, yeah. yeah. But I mean, the thing was as well that um, I was a Babylon Five fan, and the whole idea of 
instead of going out there and finding all the alien races, all the alien races came to you and you had to deal with all their problems. So it was a, a, a lot more of, to do with the politics of, you know, these different races. Definitely. I mean, but then I, I think we're talking about next generation. Next generation made all of that possible. Oh, yeah. Um, by bringing the popularity of sci-fi back, didn't it? Um, in a big, big way, yeah. especially yeah. in the US, which is incredibly important as a marketplace to actually get these things made. Well, um, it is it is an American icon, that's for sure, and uh, obviously a huge subject, hence why we've had to sort of split it over three podcast specials, <laughs> and, I, and, and a very important subject, you know, for me, certainly up there with, you know, Star Wars and Bond and Indiana Jones and many others, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, a, a real big one. So, um, uh, but yeah, so so let's let's kick off then talking about the the next gen uh, movies, which obviously began with the the seventh feature film in the series, which was known simply as Star Trek Generations. Um, in uh, what year was that? Ninety four was it? I want to say ninety four. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to say so as as we get in as we're starting off with generations. Um, the 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 thing about the original crew is that that they all had appeared in some form in the TV series. So you had D. Forrest Kelly in the very first episode, sort of giving the blessing to the new crew, and then of course you had Leonard Nimoy as Spock turn up in the two parter um, uh, reunification which was a great episode. And then, of course, you had the episode with Scotty. That's right, Relics, where mm. he got stuck in the transporter stream for yeah. like 80 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so when it came to Generations, um, it did kind of feel that William Shatner had felt a little bit left out. It's like, well, why isn't Kirk appeared in the next generation? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's interesting because... Um, the Undiscovered Country, which kind of was like it was it was a good send off for the original crew. You know, they, they all had a great that had their own moments in in that film. And also it was kind of like leading into next generation, with the whole idea of the peace treaty with the Klingons. And so, yeah, it was a bit weird when Generations was announced and to hear that um, Kirk was going to be in it. And that he was actually going to be quite a big part. And it wasn't just like a, a passing of the torch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, certainly Star Trek VI is, is definitely one of the, uh, the strongest in the film entries and, and was a really great swan song mm. um, to that cast and, and a, you know, very good film. You, you know, we, last time when Charles de Lozarica was on, um, he, he, we did touch briefly on 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 generations and and he mentioned of his fondness for it but obviously on that particular podcast we were focusing more on the on the reboot series so we 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 didn't sort of uh, uh drill into it too much but um yeah i mean generations is a bit of a i i i, I sort of um you know hinted at the time when charles started talking about it that uh, you know again had some very very good points to it but but overall um i thought it was a little bit of a mess i i disagree i don't think it was a mess i think they did they 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 made a mistake of going into the nexus because up to yeah. that point it's it, it's really good 
apart yeah. from a few, I, I think the whole business with um, Picard learning that his uh, brother and his nephew had died in a fire, just it's, it seemed really weird. You know, it, it was it was kind of put in there to give him, I don't know, some sort of drama or something. It was so they could use a nexus. It's so yeah. had recall so he could actually realize he was in the nexus and move himself out. It was literally a plot point. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. It just seems superfluous, doesn't it? Yeah. Why yeah. do you do that and then not really explore it? Well, yeah. No, I mean, it was trying to deal with the whole sort of mortality and, and you know, choices made. But a- a- absolutely, as you said, it was an excuse, really. So the uh, the whole nexus thing would would well, in inverted commas, work. Um, mm. I mean, I think what's quite interesting, as you know, I, I, I really like my um, commentaries. And uh, on the DVD and Blu-ray of um, uh, Generations, uh, R- Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Bragger, uh, they recorded a commentary back in sort of 2005. And it was a very candid commentary uh, about this film. And, um, you, you know, whether whether it worked or not and obviously they were the screenwriters on this it was their first major movie obviously they'd been screenwriters for some time on the uh, on the episodes of of, of next generation and um you know they themselves say you know they were given certain mandates by the studio as as to what this film had to include and they were trying very much to sort of crowbar everything in there. And they were actually laughing at themselves because they said, you know, when they think of Kirk, these two icons, Kirk and, and Picard, meeting for the first time, they never really imagined them cooking breakfast and making eggs together. <laughs> but that's kind of then going and riding horses, which is kind of what they ended up writing. And, and, and they, they, they do sort of laugh at that and they 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 feel that the it was really hard to make the nexus plot points work because it didn't really make any sense but was a way of getting them to have some action together you know by fighting soren it's also the time the timeline they wanted to be able to go back in time they wanted to be able to change time so they could kill everybody and then bring it back again and so the nexus kept coming back to that point I mean, it was never explained. It was never discussed. You never really... I mean, you had Whoopi Goldberg <laughs> sitting there going, oh, the Nexus is joy, um, sort of comments on it. And that's that's about all you really get from it, not understanding it, not... Um, you know, and it was an excuse for, uh, for William Shatner to get his horses out of the stable and go riding. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. You, you're not wrong now. I I remember all the behind the scenes footage of this, and it was a lot of 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 Shatner going, "Oh, this is my horse. Isn't he a lovely horse? <laughs> Isn't he doing so well? He's doing so well on camera." And um, yeah, and it's. I mean, the thing is, it's it, it, you have this really interesting storyline where you you know you you see Kirk's death on the Enterprise B. It's one. Well, the Enterprise B is one of those ships that you you wonder what happened to it afterwards because <laughs> you don't think because according yeah. to um, the sort of uh, the subtitle when they um, they cut to the uh, galleon where uh, the crew of the Enterprise D are on the holodeck, it's about seventy four years later, and so in that time, not only have you had the the ships um, B and C. And of course, we know what happened to C. 
<laughs> but the, you also had the you know the eight years of of D on their mission. So it's, it's like wow, B didn't have you know didn't have a long time out there. I mean, you know, it's kind of like it's one of those stories that I know it's kind of been explored in comic books and stuff, but. I don't understand that, but it's, you look. You take it at the beginning of uh, um, generations, um, and who's the actor who plays the captain? Um, oh, it's what's his name from um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, isn't it? Yeah, I can't remember his name. Alan, Alan Ruck is the guy um, who plays yeah. Captain John Harriman. Yeah. So the problem with that, he's he's portrayed as a bit of a buffoon, mm. not the not <laughs> a bit together, not really. A captain of an enterprise this is a doomed thing it's like um they were saying well the enterprise was being put on the back shelf and that's what b was it was being put on the back shelf go exploring not not being the frontline uh flagship anymore and that's what it felt like well i i remember reading somewhere that his character was the idea was that um that his family or it was something to do with that he got that position through like family contacts or something, which it seemed to be something very much out of, you know, like the old um, hornblower, you know, stories where they always have that captain lieutenant who didn't know what he was doing because he yeah. just got there in because, you know, somebody paid for it. Yeah, it definitely felt that way. Well, also, Simon, we've got our aliens connection there as well, because. Jeanette Goldstein, uh, who plays Vasquez, is also one of the officers <laughs> on the bridge of the Enterprise B, along with Sulu's daughter. And yeah. Tuvok. And oh, tu and Tuvok yeah. without his ears, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was an episode of Voyager where two, uh, they went back in time because this was celebrating, it must have been like it was 25 years of, of, of Star Trek. I think, I think it was the 30-year anniversary, yeah. Yeah, and he went back to um, the ship that Sulu commanded, and he was saying that he was, you know, part of the crew of that. Yeah, he was on the Excelsior with yeah. Captain Sulu. That's right. But yeah, it just seemed weird because he's also on the deck of the Enterprise B. <laughs> it's not Tuvok on the That's B though. They 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 use the same actor Tim Russ. So good gig for him. But he's 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 only playing a human. Uh, character the thing that. is though when i when i watched it today i didn't see him as being human i saw him as tuvok <laughs> yeah seven years will do that for you yeah. <laughs> it's one of those unfortunate things about playing a character for so long in such an iconic role is that that's that's how you're seen isn't it yeah well star trek has always done this because um in the 60s, they had Mark Leonard as the um, Romulan commander when you first meet the Romulans. I think it's an episode called Balance of Terror or something. And uh, he obviously then goes on to play um, Sarek, you know, Spock's father. Which always, <laughs> always surprised me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but so good gig. Good gig if you can get in on Star Trek by the looks <laughs> for an actor. <laughs> well, it used to be. I mean, there was a, a documentary I watched where they, it was called, um, uh, it was something like, I I've seen your face before. And they talked to all these actors who always play like the bit parts, the supporting roles, uh, you know, the character actors. And they were saying that Star Trek was such a good gig because you could always get work on Star Trek and you could always come back as something else. Yeah. 
Definitely. Who's the um, actor who was uh, um, in Deep Space Nine? He played about five or six characters and then came back in uh, um, um, in Enterprise. Yeah, um, Jeffrey, I think his name, the actor's name's Jeffrey Coombs or Jeffrey, Jeffrey Combs, something oh, like that. Oh, yes, yeah. He ended like up playing the Andorian. So many in, um, different aliens, yeah. so many different aliens, so many different characters. We got, I recognise him. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, 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 not, it's not so bad when they're under all the makeup, but this thing with um, using, uh, uh, you know, the, um, Tim Russ, who played Tuvok, uh, it was kind of distracting, like you said, because yeah. essentially there's, there's, there's just some pointed ears missing, but he looks and sounds exactly the same. So, yeah, you, it, is, it is somewhat uh, weird that he, that he was on that. And to think <laughs> that his character was actually around in that time as well. Exactly, serving on the Excelsior. So he so, could yeah. have he could have served on the Enterprise B. Could have done. Yeah. <laughs> Moved on yeah. very quickly after they retired it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's 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 weird. It's it, it is a bit uh, weird. But the the other thing is, you you know, I, and obviously I went off on this tangent earlier, triggered by memory about you know how when I was a kid I was you know trying to do, put on Star Trek plays and stuff at school. But I, I also remember. You know, mum always used to tell me I should write shit down and I never did. But um, I used to always come up with stories. And, and I'll be honest, you know, for the death of Kirk, for me, I always imagined it kind of like, well, a bit like George Kirk died in, in, in the reboot. I always thought that, you know, Kirk would be on the bridge of the Enterprise and he'd kind of die heroically with his ship, you know. Um, and, and obviously th this film, well, I mean, he dies twice. Yeah. yeah. But the second time's a reshoot as well because, you know, originally that, that end scene with Malcolm McDowell, um, he just got literally shot in the back and, and, and died. So they, they, they went back and um, decided to sort of try and make it more, more heroic and more action-packed by having that sort of <laughs> fight on the bridge to get the, uh, to get the remote control and all that it's stuff. Still you know. got completely slated for killing poorly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can't win. Yeah, but I mean, out of the two deaths, uh, which one do you think was the better death? I quite like shot in the back, to be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, no, I mean in the film. I mean yeah, the, the beginning yeah, that, one or the end one. I don't well, know. It's, um, you know, the, the second one is, it was such a, a bizarre setup. Mm. When he's in the Nexus, and then they go back in time, and all of a sudden they can be out of the Nexus and back in a place and in reality, which really confused me. Um, and then that whole scene becomes sort of surreal. So the first one's quite good. I mm. quite like it. You know, yeah, why yeah. don't you send a captain down to do an engineering job, which I love. Always great Star Trek. Which is, you know, the wrong person's always going to do a certain job that puts them in danger. Yeah. <laughs> well, he uh, was wearing a red shirt. He was wearing a red shirt, <laughs> which we should have known. Um, but I prefer the first one. The first one's good. Yeah. You know, um, because it, it's it's something that he's taken the choice. It's that moment when he's in the chair, mm. and you know, the captain said, "No, I'll go and do it," and you know, you take command. And he sits in the chair, and it's a really nice moment. I thought, just that moment in the chair where he stops, and you know, it's one of his best bits of acting. That you know, one silent moment of mm. the look in his eyes. I'm back in the chair, and then 
you know, makes a decision, no, I'm going to do this. I, you know, you, the captain should be in the chair, which was great. And I thought that led up to the, led up to his death there or, you know, being sucked into the nexus or wherever it was, um, which I don't quite understand because they later go on and say that, you know, um, you can't get in for a ship. Well, they were in a ship. And you know, it hit it, and he got something next to say. Yeah, but, you know, it's one of those things in Star Trek. You go, well, hang on a sec, you contradict yourself. <laughs> but um, I really did enjoy that that setup for it. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it smacked much more of undiscovered country and that sort of feel to it. And then it really did feel like a tack on his. You know, the the second time he died. Yeah, you know, it's um, well. The, there actually is uh, there's a, a series of books, and I believe the first one was written by William Shatner about yes. the resurrection of Kirk, following on from Generations. Now I never read them, but I I, I heard about them, and I just thought it was really comical. It's like you know, because as much as Leonard Nimoy was going, I'm not Spock. You got William Shatner going, I'm Kirk. Come on, Kirk, Kirk, me, Kirk. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's so upset that he's not in the reboots. Yeah, well, those those books aren't canon, so so uh, sod them. <laughs> but no, I mean, I mean, I, I'm kind of with Alex. I, I like the, I preferred the the death in the opening, um, and obviously that's how, as far as the next generation were concerned, that's how history for all that time had believed Kirk had died anyway. Uh, you know, and obviously saving saving a ship. Um, I think that the the thing with the death at the end, yeah, I mean, the Nexus stuff really didn't work. And I think their original idea about him, you know, getting sort of just shot in the back was was an attempt to do like a sort of John Wayne and the Sands of Iwo Jima type um, type thing with the character. But obviously the, the execs, um, and rightly so, I think, uh, said that he needed to go out with a bit more of a bit more action uh, than that. But uh but yeah, it, it's it's kind of it's not one hundred percent satisfying, is it? I think that's the whole the problem with the whole film is um, it's got some fabulous moments. It's some real Star Trek moments, some great interactions, some uh, some quite nice you know, sort of setups and scenes. Um, but it just doesn't quite make it each time. It's um, you know it's like Data and the emotion chip storyline through it. It just gets too much, or it's you know, it's um, you don't like him singing about life forms, lovely little <laughs> life forms. <laughs> that bit was more. That bit was more enjoyable than say going to the bar and oh, I hate this drink. Oh yes, we'll have some more. It's just too much. Yeah, I mean the the bit when he's cracking up about the joke from. Uh, from Farpoint from the very first episode of Next Generation and he just can't control himself and he just keeps going and going he's just like oh really oh. it's a nice idea mm. again and to actually lose control would be, it was a nice idea but how long was that scene? <laughs> like... it was very long yeah yeah no it, it was it was it was uh, I have to say all of that bit you know Nice as it was for, I guess, the fans and particularly Brent Spiner, you know, to, for, for Data to finally get his emotions chip and, and all that. Um, 
yeah, I mean, there were bits of it that kind of worked, but overall, I, I personally found that bit all a bit annoying and silly, and it, it kind of didn't feel like data because you, you know that was the whole point that he didn't he wanted to understand the emotions and didn't have them. So uh, yeah, it kind of it's all right. I, I have to say, the overall problems with all of all four of these films is that both Picard and Data do not feel like Picard and Data even though they seem to be the central relationship that these films are based on. Um, Picard is always doing stuff which Picard in the TV series wouldn't do. So he's always got some weird crisis going on. So the first one, so he's got the, the death of his brother and his nephew. So he gets really like angry and sort of centered. You know, he, he just puts himself away from everything. It's like, Riker, you, you, you do this investigation. I'm just going to sit in my uh, in my ready room, and um, and then of course with each film he has like a big scene, he has a big acting scene. So in this one it's him breaking down about the death when he's talking to Diana Troy, and then in the in the second one it's the the whole you know Ahab and the and the whale scene, where he gets really really angry. And the other two I'm not quite sure I I can't remember if there were any kind of scenes like that. Well, he ha- he kind of had a bit of a love story in Insurrection, which I guess we'll come to. But well, yeah, but I mean, I'm talking about a scene where he acts. You know, where he has a real actory moment. Well, it, it's the the thespian coming out of it, isn't mm. it? It's like he, he needs his uh, uh, he needs his uh, um, his major, you know, piece of stage acting. I, mean, <laughs> I think it's 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 always part of his character, even in the TV series. He needed his moments. Well, yeah, but he was always as as a character. He was he was very much more in control. And I know it's a film, and they have this kind of logic with films that everything's got to be bigger. I think the biggest problem the biggest problem with generations is it was a handover, mm. and it felt like a bit of original and a bit of next generation and some other stuff thrown in. Yeah, but not one and not the other, and. I, I, for me, that was always the problem with the film. I liked some of it. It was, you know, it was it was nice to see it come back to the cinema. It was nice to see that they were going to, you know, take the new crew on, you know, into the actual film world. Um, but it, the film itself, just didn't feel like a film. It, it felt like two or three films <laughs> sort of squeezed together, you know. And even though there's some great moments in it. You know, and some real, you know, iconic, you know, Star Trek moments in it, and wonderful one-liners. It's, um, it's, it doesn't hold together as a film. And I think that, as Keith said, the Nexus thing—it's not it explains. It's 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 used as a tool so they can they can do different things. They can go back and forwards in time. They can uh, they can bring Kirk back. They can. It's not really explained. You know, no. and and that's a problem. You know, it's it's just well, you know, that's a tool so you can bring Kurt back, and then you can go back in time and save him for you after you've watched them all die. Well, yeah, and also uh, Picard's vision of heaven was really weird. It's like he'd gone back to Victorian England. That's definitely, that's yeah, a good point. Um, yeah, he yeah. he'd gone back to the Christmas Carol, hadn't he? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it was kind of. Uh, I, I mean, I I understood it was sort of you know. The thing, the choices he hadn't made in life to have a family, you know, wife and kids and whatever. But 
you're right the way they they presented it being at christmas and you know very victorian and 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 that sort of thing didn't really work and then of course the other big problem is how comes he's he's able to sort of figure this ha- out with the help of Guinan, which is sort of inexplicable as well but obviously kirk you know he has to persuade kirk that it's it's you know i i no i'll i'll stop you there um because i have i've I've watched this again this afternoon and (laughs) both both of them come to realization it's not real because with with kirk it's when he jumps the horse horse he realizes it's not real because it, it terrified him jumping that gap every time and he did it a couple, quite a few times, <laughs> just to make sure. <laughs> yeah, he got to show yeah. off his horse, you know. Shatner <laughs> getting his money's worth out of those horses. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. And with Picard, it was the whole. Um, there was like a, a bauble with a light. It was like a, a, it looked like an exploding sun in it, like a star that was yeah. going in and out. I, I think the point. It felt like it was longer with. Uh, um the Kirk character. The whole Nexus sequence is, is too long. Well, of course, they had to crash the Enterprise twice as well, didn't they? Well, they loved that. I love that, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> out, out of all the destructions of the Enterprise, that's the best one. But they've sort of done it a little bit in Beyond. It was a bit similar, wasn't it, with the saucer section like, like crashing? But but still, still not as, as epic as... I remember seeing Generations in the cinema and that bit when... Data stands up. He goes, "Oh shit!" And you're sitting there going, "Fucking right." <laughs> yeah, I, I still, I still have a problem with the fact, though. I know they've addressed it in the reboots, but um, that the, the whole thing when they're crashing and they're just sort of hanging on, and there's no seat belts and all this sort of thing. Uh-huh. I mean, again, again, even the motion picture, you know, dealt with them having the uh, the, the restraints over their legs with the arms of the, the, the yeah, chairs and whatever. But guys, that, that was kind of stupid, wasn't it? Star Trek, Star Trek has no basis in scientific reality. Even though they <laughs> always talk about, oh, look, we have our science guys and things like that. It's all nonsense. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, it is. It, I mean, inertial dampeners. It's always the inertial dampers. dampers. No, no, no. The inertial dampers are a bit of nonsense, Yeah. Mm. It's 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 basically what they're going is like we can't get past the idea of actual inertia. Okay, we can't get past of acceleration and forces on the body. You know, to accelerate to light speed as for human beings, yeah, to get to light speed at a at an acceleration rate that wouldn't kill us would take thirty to forty years to get to light speed. Okay, so they had to invent something that they could get people to light speed really quickly. The inertial, inertial dampers, yeah, they do what? Yeah? Have you ever tried to get them explained? Yeah? It's Trek tech. Trek tech. It, yeah. it, it just techno babble. It does it. Well, it's the same thing. It's like they're, they're, they're in spaceships flying around in combat. Yeah, They're on decks that get breached and nobody is wearing any any suits, any helmets, any emergency gear. There's no seat belts, compression. There's no stabilizer. There's nothing. It's, it's, and Star Trek has always been that way. It's let's all lean this way and lean that way when the ship. <laughs> oh, that that leads me to that. I, I I didn't see this before, but there's an obvious blooper at the beginning. So you know that 
they the the when the Enterprise B gets struck by the lightning bolt from the uh, the ribbon from the Nexus, um, you see you see them all sort of do a dive, and there's and there's one guy and he lands, and you actually see the the landing pad he's on. It's this blue thing jumps <laughs> up. I'd never seen that before. <laughs> Wow, there you go. All the all, all the money spent and all the effects and they, they get a crash mat in there. Yeah, Amazing. Exactly. Um by the way, by the way, one one interesting thing that uh that Ron Moore, who who by the way, you know, does do very engaging commentaries. Um, but one of one of the interesting things he also said was one of the early ideas they had um for the beginning of the film with the with the original crew was um that uh the enterprise it was going to be this this museum ship in space, and I think that's quite interesting because obviously that's an idea he later took on when he developed and reimagined Battlestar Galactica. So I thought that was quite interesting. And another thing they say is one of the things that always you know wound them up um, as writers on Trek, which is obviously the thing that keeps people like ourselves and 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 Trek fans happy is, you know, the sort of dealing with all of the uh, continuity and making sure that all the series tie in with each other and the crossovers and the timeline and the history and all that stuff. And they actually say what he'd really like to do is make a Star Trek movie where somehow they find a way to completely uh, reboot and rewrite the timeline. And I sort of thought, oh, I wonder if uh, Abrams was listening to that commentary. (laughs) (laughs) Very probably. But he likes his reboots anyway, doesn't he? He um, does his pre-boots. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, one one other thing before we sort of uh, move on from generations, I do want to ask you guys this: Is did you feel with this film, with the beginning of this film, did you feel kind of sad and kind of robbed that they didn't have more of the original crew? No, no. You thought it was okay with it being ra- rather than the the normal trio of. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy that we sort of had Kirk, Chekhov, and Scotty. Yeah, you thought that was that that worked. Yeah, yeah. That was, I, I didn't have an issue with with that. You know, it's, they didn't they didn't need more than one or two characters anyway. I, they had great chemistry when they were doing it. I mean, it was um, that 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 opening sequence is, is is actually one of the best things about it, and it's just <laughs> just just their relationship and. I mean the bit where um, Scotty says to Kirk, "There's something wrong with your chair," because <laughs> he keeps tw- he keeps going, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he keeps standing up, doesn't he? All the time. <laughs> Generations was actually the first ever um, convention that I that I ever went to, and um, I remember that they had Walter Koenig as a um, as as one of the uh, uh, guests. And he said that uh, he, he was slightly upset in the fact that apparently they did film a lot more uh, about the aftermath of, of, of Kirk dying uh, mm. with him and James Doohan, uh, you know, some real emotional stuff, which, um, which sadly got cut from, from the film that he was, he was sort of rather frustrated about. But I, I agree with you. I think, I think it, 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 hits the, uh, it hits the right tone in the right place, you know? I def- I, it, the beginning's great, um, and the next section, you know, the beginning of the, the you know, the uh, next generation guys is quite good, and then it sort of slowly starts falling to bits, um, slowly starts unraveling, slowly becomes 
you know, plot justifying, you know, uh, what happens next. You know, it's, it's like, oh, we need to get from A to B, so let's invent something. I mean, but yeah, the beginning is, it feels like a, you know, a, a great follow on from Undiscovered Country. And then it feels like, oh, it's a nice handover. And then they sort of get lost. Yeah, I, I did feel that some of the next generation characters uh, were slightly robbed of things to do in this film, though, particularly particularly the women like, um, you know, Beverly Crusher really had, apart from getting pushed in the ocean by data at the beginning, um, you know, she really didn't have much to do in this film at all, did she? Which was no, no, kind she, of... She gets slagged off by the, uh, uh, the Klingon twins, doesn't she? When they can see through yes. George's visor. Oh, that's right. Yeah. They use they use the visor as another plot device again, don't that's they? Right, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about yeah. that. And um, they've I got the Klingons. Is it Ursula and Bator? Or yes, yeah, yeah from yeah. Yeah. and they kill them, don't they? Don't they, they do, die? Yes. In this? Yeah. Oh, well, right, yes, yeah. in that explosion which they used um, <laughs> in Deep Space Nine so many times. <laughs> yeah. It came from Star Trek 3, I think. I think that's a Star Trek 3 or a Star Trek 6 optical or something that they've yes, kept they recycling. Yes, they reused, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's expensive. Mm. <laughs> well, yes, indeed. Particularly, you know, the way they used to do it back then. But, uh, yeah. yeah. But I have to say, the Klingon Bird of Prey is my favourite ship out of Star Trek. I love the design of the Bird of Prey. It's definitely, even when they uh, they modded it through uh, around the TV series, mm. um, you know, Next Generation, then into Deep Space Nine. Um, it was always fabulous piece of design. All the Slingon ships were always fabulous design. Yeah. Yeah. And, no, I agree. And, and before we move on, I have to say, out of uh, all the films, this is the best lit out of them. I love the fact that you had the sun coming through the. Um, I guess the shields because they don't have windows, <laughs> especially in the ready room. The, that that golden light coming through, it was, it was it was the lighting on it was it was such a jump up from the TV show because the TV show everything was just very flatly shot. Flat. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah, I I, I agree. Um, it, you know, considering they were sort of using a lot of the you know although rebuilds in a lot of cases but a lot of the sets that were um you know familiar to us from the television series um you know uh john alonzo who was the dop on that did do some fabulous work and i agree that is one of its strong points for sure is it is a beautiful looking film if yeah. if, if nothing else yeah i agree well uh with the the next one first contact um they they did something that next generation was kind of sort of well known for doing was letting the actors direct episodes. And in this case, they let Jonathan Frakes direct the film. Yeah. And it turned yep. out to be quite actually very good. Um, it was actually a very good decision because at the end of the day out of the four first contacts, the best one. By a light year. Absolutely. I mean, um, I, I agree that this film is in my opinion, where they got it all right. Uh, it is one of the best of the of the franchise. Well, I, I wouldn't say they got it all right. Um, I, I I think trying to turn Picard into an action hero was, I think they that was a, a a step too far. I mean, when he's at the ends, especially his age, swinging around on ropes in a vest, he looked good. Yeah, but it, it's it's not Picard. 
<laughs> you mean that was a bit kirky? <laughs> uh, even but much bit more for kirky than you know you know it was it, and they they did it again for the next one where literally the ending of um insurrection was very similar when again it's him against you know one-on-one with a bad guy and he's swinging around the place yeah <laughs> no i mean yeah. I, I i take your point but i have to say for me i i have a massive amount of um uh, affection for first contact is my definitely my favorite of all of the next gen movies um and i just think that uh y- y- you know I-, I i thought that they'd really sort of found their feet with this i also kind of like the fact that it was a sort of sequel to the best of both worlds part one and two as well in in, in so much as the character of picard dealing with um dealing with the, the you know what happened to him by becoming locutus and, and becoming a borg and um you, you know that sort of thing obviously also you know dealing with the first contact as well uh, and i felt that in this one they'd got the balance you know all of the all of the next gen crew all of your regulars in this they actually do have their moment you know everybody has something to do in this film it doesn't feel like anybody is uh, kind of um looked over in this one and uh uh and ov- obviously for, for some it, for, for geordie it was uh first contact lenses yes i mean the, <laughs> this the, the, i mean so at the end of generations the enterprise d was destroyed and uh we all knew um because i was very much in heavily into my trek at the time and we were we all were waiting to see what the enterprise e would look like and I have to say, it was a really nice design, really like the design of the E. But then things like, and then suddenly Geordie's got these robotic eyes. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. What happened there? I mean, I know we got a new ship, but suddenly he was able to develop these, you know, these eyes. When did did that happen? And and also, as you said, uh, Keith, in in our last podcast about the uniforms, because the uniforms changed again. Yeah, they changed everything. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they 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 did kind of make this movie uh, its own, you know, have its own identity, and uh, you know, as like, Trek like, always it, likes to do. <laughs> the idea, the idea of the whole idea of the film was it was to follow on Borg stories. You know, you have the dramatic mirror scene um, with Picard. You had that that tension rack up quite early from that. And the whole idea of the uniforms, the design of the ship, um, design of the bridge especially, made it more militaristic. Mm. It was the idea to actually push in that direction so that the Picard character had that reaction. It was, my reaction is, as a military man, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to, you know... um, you know, I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> you know, it, it, that I'm not going to try and deal with that. I'm not going to try to work work a way around it. I'm just going to attack. And that was um, the whole structure of it. The, the the design of the uniforms, the design of the ship. Look at the lighting of the ship has changed again. Um, the corridors, the bridge, the ready room. Um, you, you go through everything. Everything has a different edge to it it's and that that was the element of it um and that that was the direction it was uh, it had to be deliberate idea of the production 
to actually push it in that direction. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing about First Contact, um, out of all the Star Trek films, is this is this was the the, the Star Trek's version of a horror film. I think so. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, that's why I like it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I like it from that as well. But um, I think again, there's a sort of struggle with Picard because the character of of Picard because he he is a rational person and I know he went through this trauma and stuff but when he's fighting the Borg at the beginning he's he's using that ability to help the Federation destroy the cube and he makes rational decisions but as this film comes goes along he just becomes a bit of a raving lunatic he does and it's kind of like it, that's not Picard it is Picard so you go back and watch Next Generation um Go back and watch it from. Well, I don't watch series one because. <laughs> well, no, uh, I mean, I've, I, I mean, I've watched, I've watched it, watched it a lot, and but I'm just saying that Picard was always, you know, even when he was kind of out of control, he was never to that extent. He would never put his crew in that much danger. I mean, at the end, when he's telling them that they're going to have to fight hand to hand and everything, you're just like, whoa. But that was the point of that. For me, it's what made his storyline in uh, First Contact so much more believable and helped me enjoy the movie, was that he, all the way through the series, was the one who had the rational uh, response, the one who could um, make a long-term decision, um, a decision based not on emotions but on almost logic, almost like you know, a Spock character, you know, it's, he, he was always that sort of thing. But it's like, if you watch his psychological profile, every time the Borg um, were connected, he was always emotional. It was always an emotional response with the Borg. And that's what made this so much more enjoyable, I think, because it just pushed him to the edge. You know, unlike generations where, you know, he's lost, you know, he's, as he sees it, he's his son, he's... You know his nephews. Um, this is this is personal. This was everything. You know he lost control. He lost everything, and so this was the one thing he couldn't deal with. Brilliant. I thought that was that was the best thing about this was his storyline. You know his complete breakdown and then the realization. Um, it was great, great, great writing, great acting. Mm. I, I don't know. I mean, I I I I I watched that scene again, and I, I there's moments of it I think work, and some of it doesn't. And I think that scene where he he does go a bit berserk, it just doesn't. It, it seemed way too much. It it just seemed to be way over the top. Because I I, I while you were talking, I just remember the episode of I Borg when he was dealing with that soul, Borg character. And I you're right. I do remember that he's you know. He couldn't quite deal with that, but he he came to some sort of terms with it, or terms with that one Borg character. Yeah, but exactly. But that that was that was in an episode, mm. you know, and that, that's always the. I think it's the, the, the always the issue with uh, um, from TV to film. No longer, because um, you know, in the last ten years, TV's changed. The actual story arcs become much longer. They're not so episodic. Um, but, you know, so it's a bit now there's not so much of a difference. But, you know, then, you know, so what's this? This is 96. You know, it's, yeah. it's a, it was very episodic. 
And films were very different. They had a longer storyline, so you could develop that storyline. You know, I mean, Next Generation did do their double episodes, which, you know, they had some fabulous, fabulous double episodes. Mm. You know, um, best of Both Worlds. And things. You know, the fabulous, amazing storyline. I mean, they had the best ending to a um, TV series ever with um, uh, All Good Things. No, I, I agree. I mean, I mean that's kind of what's interesting, and I think again, more in Braga, they they, um, they reference this in in when they're talking about generations. Is in many respects, and I kind of thought this the the the, the season the the two hour season finale to Star Trek: The Next Generation, all good things for me, and and for quite a lot of people, I think is actually more enjoyable in some respects than generations. Yeah. And they, they kind of said that there wasn't a lot of time, writing time, between them writing that finale and then writing the, the Generations feature. And, you, you know, they, they'd almost, you know, they, they admit themselves that they'd almost put, you know, so, so much into getting that last episode produced that, uh, that they were kind of behind with rewrites and stuff for... Uh, for for um generations but i i think alex your your point and i totally agree with you and this is definitely how you know television has changed in the last sort of 15 years um you, you know even though we had great two-parters of of next gen and and voyager and deep space nine etc um they were very much tied to the fact that uh, because it was of episodic nature you to a certain extent, had to sort of hit the reset button at the end of each episode. So, you know, the Enterprise or Voyager or whatever would go off, leave the planet and go off to the next ad adventure. Um, Deep Space Nine was slightly different with that. But um, I think this is one of the things with these next-gen films is uh, you can sort of see that the actors were able to start dealing with things and doing things that kind of maybe made them feel tied in eight in seven years of television for example the data emotion chip that we've we've already talked about uh geordie losing his visor so he's able to sort of you know act emotion more with his eyes and um certainly yeah may, maybe development more of 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 picard's character um i mean one bit that did seem very uncharacteristic um which is, I think, perhaps what you're get, trying to get at with some of this, Simon, was um, the bit when Picard actually confronts Worf and, and you know, calls him a coward and, and all of that sort of thing. And then, obviously, after his, his scene with Alfie Woodward, he, he, he goes and, uh, you know, apologises. But, um, but, yeah, I, I think uh, may, maybe these movies were kind of opportunities as as with the original series and the original movies for the um for them to develop the characters out slightly from from the the episodic feel of the series maybe but i'm i'm gonna say this i i will say that for the the original crew when they moved from tv to film their characters still would felt the same they didn't feel like suddenly you know spock's gonna show emotion you know, or or Kirk was like, you know, trying to have sex with everything on the, you know, they they still felt like the same characters that just they moved from the TV screen to the big screen. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the the problem with Next Generation 
was Next Generation is uh, um, was the crossover for TV. It's when TV started to change. I mean, if Next Generation is great, um, the actual TV series, to watch the TV series and watch season one, and it looks like the original Star Trek. Um, the storylines are the original Star Trek. The structures, the original Star Trek. The writing style is almost original Star Trek. Um, you get into the second season, and they're starting to actually think, well, hang on a sec, we need to broaden our characters. They need to have a bit more to them. You know, and you, you bring on the, uh, um, the gambling. You know, they have their poker nights, um, but not the captain. So he can come in once a season and go, oh, you know, it's, um, you have that, that structure that starts to change. Um, you get to the third series, and you get the first of the double episodes where they've actually got uh, um, storylines that are fully arcing past one. Um, you get to season four and five, and you've got storylines that run all the way through. You've got the Worf uh, um, character, which is what's going on with the Klingon Empire. You have uh, um, the Basisoid uh, um, uh, diplomacy going on in the background. You have all these different things that start uh, um, going through full arcs, um, and TV starting to change. Then, if you look at uh, um, a lot of the actual uh, detectives, the uh, that were coming on at the time, you know, Hill Street, Hill Street Blues was just pulling out, and you had the takeovers from then. You know, you had you suddenly had storytelling was coming um, slightly differently. Characters had to be slightly broader. Um, stories had to go further. You had to go past the episodic thing. And I think the problem for Next Generation is film hadn't quite caught up, you know, so they were still going to film and film has moved on. I think if you take, say, Abraham's reimagining, changing of the, the thing, he's, he's captured everything um, of the original, you know, um, adventure, um, camaraderie, um, the timing of the action, everything's fabulous. But also the characters are much fuller, much richer, much darker. Um, everything, everything's rounder. And the problem with Next Generation is they were trying to find their way. And I think First Contact is probably the first time that they've taken a TV series and shown the dark side of, uh, um, of characters. And there was the dark side of characters. Um, and it was brilliant. And I, everybody goes, oh, it's such a wonderful, you know, uplifting storyline of uh, First Contact. I don't see it that way. And, you know, you said it was, it's a horror show, and it was a horror show. And the characters become dark. You know, and we all lauded um, the reimagining of uh, uh, Battlestar Galactica because it was so dark and it was mm-hmm. so intense. But you look at First Contact. First Contact was the first to do that. You know, taking that series and making the characters dark. And you, you didn't like the Picard character slashing out and being so, you know, so illogical. And so, uh, for me, it was like, finally, you know, the character could show he can break. He's not indestructible. He's not, you know, the, uh, the, the last man standing that's saying, no, oh, no, we're going to be calm and patient. You know, yeah. it's brilliant. <laughs> They, they gave him some sort of moral ambiguity, which is obviously very common in, in, in characters on television and in movies today. But um, 
uh, I mean, the whole thing with Picard is I always thought, and I was not a fan of the next generation when it first started at all, but I always thought that the casting of Patrick Stewart was, was very good and they'd been very brave to, to go so away from Kirk, you know, and, and, and have a, a captain that is a very different character to, to, to what we'd, um, what we'd seen previously, but, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, the next generation was very much, uh, a sort of mirror to sort of the late eighties, early nineties, where oh, yes. the original series was, you know, um, you know, there's Klingons off the starboard bow, you know, shoot to kill, shoot to kill. But then when it came to next generation, there's Klingons on the starboard bow. Let's conference. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get round a table. It was, yeah. Yeah. Was Let's talk to them. Well, <laughs> but apparently some of those early next gen, you know, like season one and two uh episodes were actually uh rewrites of episodes that were for the planned you know star trek phase two series yeah. which mm-hmm. ended up becoming the motion picture Hen- hence the sort of likeness of decker and ilea to sort of Riker and and troy you know in terms of characters and yeah you know, I-, I confess i haven't with all star trek actually even though i am a big fan i confess that with all of the series um I've definitely not seen all of the episodes of any of them, even the original series. I, I don't know about you guys. But I just on your point about the phase two storylines, they were brought in for series two because there was a writer's strike. Ah, that's right. Another one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they, they needed to they needed to get stories quickly because uh, the first two series of Next Generation wasn't very well received at paramount and they they were threatening to close it down it wasn't yeah it wasn't for the third series well of course gene roddenberry as well uh for those first couple of seasons was you know in control and an executive producer and obviously you know sadly he died you, you know during um you know the third season or whatever and it went over to to rick berman at that at that point wasn't it chief there's a very yeah. good documentary directed by William Shatner, of all people, about those first two series of Next Generation and the struggles that went on, you'll find that Gene Roddenberry actually was not that much in control. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. Felt more like a studio. It's a very interesting documentary, and they they do talk to the cast and crew, and there was a lot of stuff that was going on. But it seemed to, once they got into the third series, they kind of found their footing. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. With everything like uh, like Charles mentioned last time, you know, even down to the, the slight changes in the costume design were, were, was better and everything. It's a weird trait that then just followed the next two series on and quite possibly even Enterprise where the, the third series was with the Zindi War. Yeah. And then Seven of Nine in Voyager, which we all like. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and, and obviously the Defiant in... Um, in in uh in deep space nine which of course appears in this film the, yeah. the, the thing about the story is we do have the dark storyline but then you've also got the light and fluffy storyline with um down on earth where they're trying to do the the flight of the phoenix and <laughs> uh you know and to make first contact so it, it it's a it's kind of a nice balance because if it was too dark then it it, it really wouldn't be star trek would it 
I mean, I think it's fair to say that they definitely moved away from Gene Roddenberry's vision by by this point, hadn't they? I think uh, with this film, Frakes did a a fabulous job with uh, with First Contact of actually balancing it out. Mm. You had the light Star Trek fun, you know. um, You had the banter. You had that side of it in the background. You know, while you know, up in space. You know, there's, you know, there's something out there, and you can't scream. You know, it's, nobody can hear you. It's, yeah. yeah, well, exactly, and every and everybody got something to do. Uh, plus, as well, you had obviously uh, Zephyrin Cochran in this, played by James Cromwell. Um, but you also you had like little cameos. So you had mm. um, Robert Picardo appearing as the EMH program on on the Enterprise E, and you right. had. Uh, was it Barkley? Yes, Barclay? you had yeah, Dwight, Dwight Sculpts, yeah, as Lieutenant yeah. Barkley, yeah. <laughs> uh, there was there was actually there was a few others as well because there was the guy out of um, out of Voyager, the one who played Neelix. He's the waiter when they go into the holodeck. Oh, that's right, when the that's holographic right. bullets yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yeah, he's he's in that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's <laughs> um, there's a few others as well. I noticed it is the best film of the next gen. Yeah. There is. It has so many elements that are pleasing to it. It's wonderfully paced. You know, the timing of it is, is nice. You know, you get the tension build up and then you've got some, as you said, some light and fluffy back on Earth just to calm it all down again before it's, you know, before a loser. And it's the Borg Queen introduction yes. was fabulous. What a great yes. a design idea. Structurally, how he, introducing her was so much fun. Well, they redesigned uh, the look of the Borg, didn't they? They, like with uh, the Klingons and the motion picture in mm. in uh, First Contact, they redesigned the uh, the Borg to be a bit more sort of nastier looking uh, and less so blocky. Uh, yeah, 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 less less spandex with tubes stuck <laughs> on the outside and more more yeah more sort of. Uh, organic and yeah. um yeah no absolutely they definitely improved that of course the other thing they did is is it was cool that they brought in the sort of parallels to uh literature and melville stuff um you know in a similar way to nicholas mayer did with um uh with with with, with of khan and whatever and bringing you know the dickens uh quotes and and then obviously in the undiscovered country the shakespearean stuff into it i thought that was again another another one of those sort of star trek traits that that had been there that they they sort of um brought back in this with with the the old ahab story and and stuff like that i thought that was um quite nicely nicely handled as well um definitely um literature plays a very important role in star trek doesn't it yes yes it does no i I thought this one was great um you, you know obviously wonderful visual effects as well and i have to say a, a wonderful score by jerry goldsmith this 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 one is is mm. fantastic you know um re- really really worked oh yeah and it's nice that it ends with the actual uh jerry goldsmith you know star trek theme you know that they that they pinched for new gen for our next generation from the motion picture so it was nice to to sort of see him <laughs> you know yes it was yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I no think, i agree i think that's one of those things that's like um i think one of the the things that's always been good star trek throughout 
has always been the soundtracks. It's, they've always, always tried to follow, you know, follow that high, that high bar of what they were trying to do from the beginning. I mean, you know, it's, it's pleasing to listen to uh, a score that actually fits with the genre and the, uh, the actual action going on. Exactly, and the spirit of exploration and all that stuff, you know. It's, I think it's, so. It's, it's, it's what some of these, uh, these composers, some composers just bring life to, to actual series and genres, don't they? Hmm. And Goldsmith definitely brought life to Star Trek. Oh, indeed. Well, okay, well, moving on to the, the next one. Um, they decided that Jonathan Frakes had done such a great job on First Contact that they'd bring <laughs> him back for the next one. And uh, unfortunately, I don't know what happened in between because this one just turned out to be one of those next generation episodes where data goes a bit crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, obviously, obviously, more in Braga, um, you know, they, they, they did Generations and they obviously wrote um, First Contact as well. And then they kind of went off to do, I, I think more was mainly involved in Deep Space Nine and Braga in Voyager. So um, they didn't actually uh, write the third film uh, in, in the next gen franchise, but it was sort of down to Rick Berman and Michael Piller. Uh, who obviously, you, you know, are veterans from the TV show as well. Um, but yeah, as you rightly said, Simon, to me, the problem with Insurrection wasn't so much that it, it wasn't awful or anything, but it just felt just really like an extended episode. It didn't, there was nothing particularly movie-like about this one. Uh, it wasn't like a, 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 a grand adventure. And I remember I, I went with my friends and family, but, you know, Sorry, that's unfair, is it? Sorry, I Alex. It's a bit unfair. Okay. And it, it's like if you actually look at what they were trying to do, it was a big, broad exploration idea. The, the problem was, is it's like um, it seems to have been shot as you know a a farewell to next generation love affair, and that's all go. Ooh, you know, uh, we all love these characters, and you know that sort of forget about. A story that's believable, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, and some characters that are believable. In this case, the villains are very nice because instead of trying to force um, the inhabitants of this planet, you know, out by gunpoint, they they want to actually sort of kidnap them in the middle of the night and put them into a massive holodeck so to make <laughs> them think that they're still on their planet. Yeah, the thing I never understood about that is another thing about. You're not really thinking about. So I've got a holo ship that's cloaked. Yeah. So um, <laughs> it's a spaceship that you can stick in space and nobody see it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put it in a dam with refractive water. So I, I don't know. It's so it displaces water to start with. It's one of those things that's like the whole idea behind it. You know, all these little ideas like my my. The thing I hate, do you know the observation uh, round yes. yeah. in there, yeah? Is it, is it just me or does it change size? It shrinks. <laughs> it's like all of a sudden, it's this big expanse of room that they're all in and then the thing gets blown away and they can actually see them and it's a tiny little window. <laughs> it's all <laughs> together. <laughs> it's like on this little rock. Um, 
the idea for me was good. You know, the children, the children who'd been thrown out, coming back to remove, you know, the parents. Um, you know, the the immortality. It's all these things that, uh, you know, corruption within our um, Starfleet uh, again, which is always nice. Um, it's nice ideas, nice structure, um, but it just never never quite gets there anywhere mm. you know it's yeah then there's too many moments where you know geordie's standing on the bridge going oh i've never seen the sunrise <laughs> it's like <laughs> really <laughs> i was like well yeah it, doesn't his eyes sort of regenerate or something how it's like <laughs> there's no eye left yes yeah. <laughs> it's like when he first started the geordie character he didn't have an optic nerve that's why he had those things on the side of his head that were connecting into his brain. You know, they talked about it. It was discussed. He had no optic nerves. My optic nerves are regenerating, <laughs> but there aren't any. It's right. You know, it's, yeah, it's all wonder. It was all soft and fluffy completely all the time. And, you know, this, oh, I can stop time and look, everything goes slowly. And um, why? For what purpose? You know, oh, so he can save her when the rocks fall on oh, And also the, the actual inciting incident of the story with uh, Data, you know, on, on a, you know, it's been lent out to, to these guys. And, and what possible help would Data have to be there why was data there in the first place why was he, you well, know? because he's got his own flotation device i thought that was ridiculous <laughs> I mean, the, the whole thing so you know picard gets called up because um you know data's gone haywire and it's like well didn't that happen in there was a similar thing that happened in an episode of next generation or couple of times yeah and it's just like oh really we're doing that again um yeah yeah it, it's it's again it's frakes does quite a good job of you know having all these characters get their little moments and um you know having some you know very star trekky moments but for me it's it's such a weak story you know it's it's poorly written um, really, really poorly written, um, and it—it's a shame, really, because the the premise could have been great, mm. and some of the some of the effects are um, were groundbreaking. You know, the uh, uh, the actual pushing plasma, you know, into uh, into space, going through uh, um, the nebula, were groundbreaking effects that were just sort of wasted. You know, it's it's like the whole chasing is that we're being chased. You know, through the thing. Oh, they're they're much more powerful than we are. Oh, they've they've ripped space time, and oh, we're going to do. It's just like, oh, come on, guys. <laughs> also, yeah. I I found weird the whole because throughout the whole TV series, you know, uh, Riker and Troy had been a couple and. They, they did that thing for a little while where were they weren't they going to get back together and then they kind of went well no we, we, we'll let them have their own lives and you know by the end Troy was sort of um, with with Worf 
And of course, yep. that didn't work out. So it, it seemed really weird that then suddenly Riker and Troy got back together. And just because, you know, they were feeling a bit younger. It's and he shaved his beard. Yeah. That's what's that about? Yeah. Now, I mean, I mean, it, yeah, it was kind of, I mean, again, they had some good sort of guest actors in this. You had F. Murray Abraham and Anthony yeah. Zerb and whatever, but some... Who were great in it, but but you're right. The, unfortunately, as we all know, any any movie, you know, relies on the strength of the script, and uh, you, you know, whereas many of the elements, a bit like we were talking about before, you know, there are a lot of good elements and set pieces in this film. Overall, it doesn't really sort of do much, and it is quite forgettable, isn't it, out mm. of the canon of films? I think, as Simon said, you know, it's just felt like an extended episode yeah you know what they should have called this film they should have called this film picard in love because <laughs> <laughs> that rolls off the tongue it does. <laughs> well do, now do you remember that episode where he um he he got hit by this probe and he actually lived a whole life yes in fact, a village right. yeah right. it's like it was like somebody went, that was a good episode. Let's try and do that. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they he had a similar look. The clothes were all very kind of, you know, khaki earth tones, which he had in that episode. If they'd done that episode of film, it would have been brilliant because mm. that was a fabulous storyline. Um, that that yeah. was, I mean... I think that was called The Inner Light, wasn't it? That episode. I think yeah. I remember the one you're talking about, yeah. but... Uh, learn to play learn to play the, uh, the pipes, or whatever it was. The, uh, that's right, the yeah. Um, I know that was one of Patrick Stewart's favourite episodes, because it is on a... They do have a... Um, they did release on DVD, like a sort of captain's collection, where each of the captains picked their favourite episodes, and I'm pretty certain that that was... Uh, Patrick Stewart's one, if memory serves. But yeah. Also, this is also the the beginning. Well, okay. First contact was the first one to do this. How do we get Worf on board the Enterprise? Yeah. Now, okay. In in first contact, it works. Of course, yeah. From did, this but... point on, it's so shoehorned. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Worf, what are you doing here? <laughs> Shouldn't you be on Deep Space Nine? <laughs> I was just passing. Yeah, yeah, because space is a really small place, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> just happened to be in the The so. galaxy is tiny. <laughs> well, it is in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, well, yeah. and it is on this as well, I guess. But yeah, yeah. Um, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, Michael Dorn was on a pretty good deal. In fact, you know, <laughs> with, with Star Trek, when you think about it, particularly as he appeared as, as well, a sort of great-grandfather in Star Trek VI as well. And, um, you know, he was able to be in all these films. But absolutely, again, whereas in First Contact, it made total story sense for him to take the Defiant from Deep Space Nine to, to attack the Borg. You know, that made total sense. In, in this one, it was kind of one of those sort of weird coincidences, which, uh, yeah, was... was <laughs> it didn't really really work did it <laughs> yeah and also i mean he just wasted it i mean it was it just he was used as a joke wasn't he he was yeah. yeah it was just like, oh, what the was... big klingon zit you don't do yes. anything small do you <laughs> <laughs> he was going through puberty again 
Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. It, it's it's this. I think it's this thing with uh, um, with Star Trek is um, they seem to get lazy um, with certain films. I don't know if it's Paramount. I don't know if it's it's the actual you know production team. You know whether you know Luke Berman's just you know he sort of gets bored. Well, <laughs> um, the thing is that there was a lot going on because you think they were. They were churning out a movie every couple of years, but this was at the height of Star Trek where you still had two series running simultaneously as well. So, mm. um, y- y- you know, it-, it-, it does make you wonder sometimes whether, I mean, I know they had massive teams working on all these things, but, it, you know, was this when when the franchise started to get, you know, started to suffer from franchise fatigue, maybe? I don't Maybe know. I mean it also comes down to that um, up to this point the um, odd films were n- not that good compared to the even films, which has changed with the reboot in my opinion. Well, no, <laughs> I, it, it changed with the next film. The next film broke the pattern when it came to Nemesis, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then we got uh, Into Darkness. See, Nemesis broke the pattern. Yeah, it did. Even though they say that, though, you see, I've still got, I know we'll get onto this in the next podcast, but I've still got massive love for Star Trek 3. So that was an odd one. But there you go. <laughs> but I mean, if you take the the even ones, com- uh, the, the odd ones compared to the even ones, the even ones seem to have a, a, a bigger scale to them. Uh, you know, it may not be like a better story, but. The, the scale seems to be a lot better. I mean, so, you know, okay, motion picture, you know, it is, it's enjoyable if you're a Star Trek fan, but if you're not a Star Trek fan, it can be quite dull. It's very dull. Though. Yeah. Rafa Khan, brilliant. Search, search a Spock. It's, it's a nice follow-up. It's a it's, middle story. But it yeah. is not the scale of Khan was. No. Then you've got uh, Voyage Home, which is it's just a joy. Because you see these, you see the crew go back to you know contemporary times, yeah, yeah, and it's it's a lot of fun just seeing them interacting and having to save you know humpback whales, yeah. These are ridiculous, yeah. as well. But then not as ridiculous as yeah. five with Kirk fighting God. Well, that's true. Yeah. But what does God need with a starship? Exactly. <laughs> and then so you, yeah, yeah. So and then you got Undiscovered Country, which is a great send off film. Great send-off yeah. film. Very, very good film. A great whodunit film. That's what I love about that. Yeah. So you got <laughs> Generations, which is is the passing of the torch. Yeah. And then you got First Contact, which is like, right, this is the next generation crew, and this is what they're going to do, and they do something kind of dark. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. Insurrection, and it's just like, yeah, they just sort of. <laughs> <laughs> it's like deflated it yeah, did deflate yeah. the series and so yeah so when you saw nemesis and you thought oh picard's gonna go up against himself you thought this is gonna be good it's gonna be epic that nemesis was perfect yeah uh, when you look at it yeah when you look at the the actual structure of the story you think i said that's quite good um the idea about what's going on our um introduction of our um you know, race and characters that we haven't really got to know, um, the big standoff battle, you know, um, you've all these things coming on, you think, brilliant, fabulous, 
And then the movie comes out and you think, well, where's the rest of the movie? It's like there's bits missing everywhere. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the strangest films I've ever seen. Yeah. No, I, I, I've got lots to say about Nemesis. So, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get on to it because I think... I think yeah. we've we've said all we can say about insurrection. It's <laughs> yeah. it's it's a it's it's really it's just it, okay. It's okay, yeah. and if you if you don't watch it, you're you know you're not going to be missing out on anything. <laughs> no, agreed, agreed. Yeah, yeah. I think we agree on. I that. I think my my final word on it is is that after first contact, somebody went. You know what? I think this needs to be a bit lighter. Let's yeah. just have a liked epic a film. A nice, a nice, fluffy, happy film. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 not movie hell, but then it certainly isn't movie heaven either, is it? So no, it's movie meh. Yeah, movie meh. <laughs> well, I I would say it would be movie hell for the fact that they, you know, they didn't. It seemed like they weren't trying. It did. Yeah, I think that's the that's the thing with. Uh, a lackluster episode. Yeah. yeah. Whatever you can say about Nemesis, at least it concept-wise, they they seem to be trying, and they try been trying to do something quite interesting. It was just execution was just, just yeah, it was just wrong. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, let, let well let's. I mean, let's look at this. Okay, you're absolutely right. On paper and conceptually, this this is a really good idea and should be great. Um. We've got John Logan uh, writing the screenplay, who's, you know, a prolific, a, a decent writer. And we've got Stuart Baird helming this, who I've always been, you know, he obviously worked as an editor with Richard Donner on all of the Lethal Weapon films and the Superman film. Um, he, he'd been a pretty good action director in his own right. Um, you know, executive decision is still one of my... Uh, sort of guilty pleasures and definitely the best <laughs> film that Steven Seagal was ever in, in my yeah. opinion. Um, yeah, uh, and US Marshals is, is a lot yeah, of fun to watch. Exactly. I mean, it's 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 not The Fugitive, but it's, it's fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you, you know, you'd think that, um, okay, maybe maybe this would be a, 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 a decent movie. Um, unfortunately... I think that probably Stuart Baird, for all the good he's done uh, in his career, was probably the problem with this film in so much as this film feels like it had been made by someone who had never watched an episode of Star Trek in their entire life. Did did you feel that? Um, in some yeah. places. In yeah, some, I mean, yeah. you know, you mm. had the whole thing with, you know, because they introduced... Um, you know, another counterpart of Data, uh, this character called uh, B4. With no mention of law whatsoever. So, yeah. Data was kind of coming to the end of his his storyline. And you, and there was there was rumours that Brent Spiner was just, he was fed up of doing it. He just didn't want to be Data anymore, like Spock, like Leonard Nimoy playing Spock back in the time of Star Trek Two. And so rumors were going around that, you know, this would be in the end of data. So when I, I saw B4, I went, uh Which is a shit name, by is, the way. Yeah, it is. As well. It, That's it's lazy writing. Yeah. You <laughs> you go, oh, this is a get out clause. Yeah. This um, is this is like the beginning of Star Trek Two, where it's kind of like they they fake his death. And it's like, ooh. Well, exactly. I mean, that's one of the things I kind of hated about that is 
they kind of got away with it in the franchise once with um, what Harve Bennett had, had executed with, with you, you know, Spock and, and Wrath of Khan into Search for Spock and all this sort of mm. thing. But this just totally felt like they were trying to set up exactly the same thing where, oh, you know, in the next film, we can download all of Data's memories in, into, into this guy and it'll be data. In fact, in the expanded universe, comics and, and novels and whatever, I believe they've actually done that. Mm. And uh, data has sort of been reborn by, by taking over the body of B4 with, with data's download or whatever. But again, it, it felt really heavy handed, didn't it? I mean, the film kind of just was saying, well, we, we reset data to back to like the very first episode of next generation. Yeah. It was. I, I just found that a bit uh-huh. crap. Yeah, I, do you know m- my problem with this film is they seem to, as you Keith said earlier, is that it's like they didn't know they were making a Star Trek movie some of the time. You know, you start off with Mad Max scenes, which was just <laughs> bizarre. Um, it was just. I, I yeah, like, yeah. did somebody wanted to make Mad Max, but got you know got the star trek gigs i thought hang on a sec <laughs> i've got the budget let's let's do some mad max which is just did my head in yeah um you know and then sort of have a really good cast all right or, you know uh, hardy you know playing young picard which is always a bit bizarre mm. um at least you can actually understand what he's saying in this movie <laughs> um you know and he's plays it quite well you know and i, th- I think the reman played brilliantly I, 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 the look, the feel of them. Well, that's you got Ron Perlman there. Yeah, the Ron Perlman plays yeah. the voice, doesn't he? Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. Um, and this is the first time we. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong, because, it, like I said, I have missed a lot of Star Trek over the years. But is this the first time we actually see the Remans? Because obviously, yes. the whole Romulus Remus thing has always been there. But um, and we've seen the Romulans loads, even though their appearance has always sort of shifting slightly which is which is odd but is this literally the first time we 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 actually see the remans in this film i know it's the first time they're actually yeah they've they've actually been seen they've been spoken about but this is the first time they've been seen um yeah and it's quite dramatic and i think they look quite good i mean um and i think some of the backstory for them and what was going on is dealt with quite well, you know. Um, I guess, this is the thing that annoys me about this film. I mean, there's elements to it, and you think that could, that's great. I really like. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's stopped, or it's. I don't know we've gone in a different direction now. Well, hang on a sec. <laughs> we'll get, everything about this film is it could have been great. It could have been the best generation, next generation film by a country mile. Um, but there's stuff missing. It, it, they have a, you have a scene, and you think, okay, what's going on with this? And I oh, know we've moved on now. It's like, <laughs> what's well, we were just discussing that bit of backstory. We were just discussing what you know, why there's a difference between you know this Picard and his his clone, and then all of a sudden, oh no, what we're going to do now is we're going to you know, move it on to the action sequence, you know, um, you think, okay, well, but we haven't dealt with that. Yeah. Um, well, this was, this was a funny year for the uh, franchise films. Cause this was 2002. 
So this was the same year that that Die Another Day came out. And obviously in that you had, you know, a Bond film suddenly with a load of CGI and, and putting in sort of more sort of sci-fi elements like invisible cars and, and stupid sort of computer suits and stuff like that. And then in this you have, um, you know, a sci-fi film, which is like you said at the beginning, trying to do sort of live action stunts with uh, cars jumping over canyons and, and all of that sort of thing. And it was kind of like, yeah, it was a bit of a, a bizarre year it was it was you know i felt let down by by the sort of staples that year if you know what i mean (laughs) well i mean the the thing about this film as well is the way it starts so you you have this attack on romulus which you know Mm -hmm. you know a whole lot of romulans you don't know or care about and then they cuts to the wedding of Riker and troy and data singing and they are singing, and oh and Wolf going, oh Wolf, you're here. <laughs> yeah, Wolf, yeah, and and, and also Wolf didn't didn't you used to have a thing for Troy, but that's never brought up either. Is it? Yeah, but, uh, yes. uh, you, you know, and and also didn't Picard when he was young in some of the old episodes, did he not used to have hair? That's right. <laughs> I'm being really nitpicky now, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, you're no, you're absolutely right. I mean, <laughs> I know he lost his hair at a young age, but the age that uh, Shinzon's supposed to be, he would have had a full head of hair. Yeah, it was mm. it was odd things like that, though, wasn't it? There's lots of those. It just felt there's lots of things that were sort of wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, the the whole thing with Shinzon, the reason one of the reasons why he invited. Uh, Picard and the crew to, to to visit Romulus was the fact that he was suffering from a degenerate disease that he hoped that the original Picard would be able to cure with maybe like a, a, a transfusion or something. Or something. He's genetic makeup, yeah. Yeah, but the thing is, instead of that being like a reason for him to be there, but they don't know about it, they he just comes out and says it. I need you, you know, I'm, I'm dying, I need you. And you're like, oh, well, that's a bit forward, isn't it? Mm. Well, I, that would be fine if, if there was more subtlety in the the other backstory about what he's really doing. Yeah. You know, um, and there was other substitutes because that could be, you know, you could play on that. But it's like it changed so quickly. Mm. You know, it's like, hello, we're all friendly. I need your help. By the way, I'm going to kill you. You know, it's like, okay. All right. Um, it's, and and also, wasn't this a lot of more of the same as well? Because correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I didn't really watch this recently for this, but um, didn't didn't Deanna Troy once again try and fly the Enterprise and end up crashing into something? Or, or have I imagined that? <laughs> no, no, she doesn't. She doesn't try and fly and crash in because she's told to crash. Oh right! Yeah, <laughs> I knew there was more crashing of the yeah. Enterprise. No, it does, but it's <laughs> I love that. That's the that's the sort of thing that makes it yeah, a Trek movie. That she does do it again, but this time, you know, when she starts crashing, <laughs> ram that shit. Which is but <laughs> but you know, Stuart Baird. I mean, you know, he's he's a good ed- editor and a good action director. But I really feel that he did not do his Trek homework. Um, before helming this project i mean it really does feel like it was someone that didn't really know the the the, the trek character these characters specifically and in, in the trek world you you say that but there is one thing they did bring 
back from the series for this one, and that's the mind rape of Deanna Troy. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. 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 I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. again, she has to suffer that trauma. Presumably, John Logan wrote that, though. I, I guess, but uh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, there is that. Of course, the other thing I really liked as well. Um, it's a little cameo in it, but um, I, I, I think I've mentioned before. I was a, I was a big fan of. Um, Voyager. I know a lot of people didn't like it particularly, but I did like the fact that they had a, a cameo by um, Kate Mulgrew as, as Admiral James uh, Janeway giving um, Picard his orders at, at, at the beginning. I thought that was because obviously uh, they'd got back a year or two earlier, hadn't they? So um, I, I did kind of like that. Though I just loved the way you just brushed past me. We're not going to discuss the mind rape of Deanna oh, Troy sorry. in this film. No, no, let's let's talk about the mind rape. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Let's talk about the mind rape. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a far more interesting <laughs> topic <laughs> than the cameo by yeah. you know. I I, I love Janeway. I think yeah. she is one. She's she's a great, great captain. Character. Yeah, great yeah. captain, and she you know she's up there with them. I have to say, for all the the captains they've had in the series, they've all been good. Yes. They've all been their own different characters, and they've all been good. I agree. Um, Sorry, back back to the mind. <laughs> I do but apologize. I mean, it, it's it's one of these things where it, it, it the way it's you see it and stuff. It, it it's kind of it's horrible, and then kind of never really dealt with again. No, but it's it's, it's that, that that I think that's the, the problem with the whole film. Mm. It's that, that's it's just indicative of of something happens, and you think okay. And then it's like, well, no, we've moved on. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, and so many, especially that, because that is um, in, another very dark moment, you know, dark scene. And it's, it's incredibly intrusive, incredibly personal to her and incredibly upsetting to her. And, you know, there's all this emotion, emotion build up there. And then, as you said, it's like, okay, <laughs> um, right, we're, we're, Doing something else now. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just seems to be there to give Riker, uh, you know, emphasis to, to fight the Viceroy. You Again, know. you know, basically, you know, a, a plot ploy. You yeah. know, how, how do we build up? Oh, Riker needs to fight somebody. Oh, I've got an idea, perhaps. I, I don't know. But it's, it's the problem with this film is it feels like there's 40 minutes missing mm. you know there's so many gaps do you think well hang on a sec shouldn't have something have happened between those two shouldn't something have happened there shouldn't they have explained that aren't we meant to have seen that how did they get there you know and it keeps happening um in nemesis there's there's it's 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 sort of like why well, is it we shot loads um, but those scenes didn't really work so we just cut them we didn't reshoot them. We didn't have the budget, you know, and <laughs> I, I don't know. But it, it feels like there was so much more to the film that's just missing. Um, yeah. And I don't know if that's just, you know, it's poorly written. It was, you know, poor choices in, our, um, you know, in the editing. It was poor. I, I, I'm not sure. Um, but it, it really does feel that. And it was a shame. It was such a shame because so many elements of this, was so exciting, you know. Um, it's such an interesting push away, you know. Uh, you're you're not dealing with uh, uh, 
just the Romulans, you're dealing with the other side of them. Um, you know, you're not involving the Vulcans, you know, in a Romulan issue. You're, you're taking all that side out of it. You're looking at it from the human side of, uh, um, much more of the human side of uh, the Federation dealing with uh, the Romulans and the Remans. And, and it's, it's, it was sort of, I thought, this could be fun. This could be interesting. This could be exploring a bit more of the universe. And they sort of said, well, we'll have some action sequences and we'll do some setup scenes and some introductions. And yeah, that did. <laughs> I mean, it's, or we'll shoot them and then uh, I don't particularly like those. You know, it's, it's I, I don't know what, what they were thinking when they, they were editing it. When you look at what they edited it, didn't didn't you, they watch any of it back or sequences together and suddenly go, oh, that doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, just, we, we sort of left that halfway through. I mean, because that's what so many scenes feel like. Well, it could be a case of studio interference. It's, you're right. You're, it could be, yeah. The death of Data would have had much more resonance um, had that B4 character not been... Mm. sort of shoehorned into this story and uh you know it, it really didn't make any sense at all that and uh was really annoying as i said for any fans of the series that they didn't even not even in a line of dialogue or anything did they sort of make any reference back to law um or anything like that so it was all a bit yeah kind of for me, that felt really shoehorned in, just like an excuse to get Brent Spiner back if he changed his mind, you know? Um, to a degree, yeah, uh, to a degree, it, it probably was. But again, that's Max of Studio, doesn't it? It does. Um, which is a shame. I mean, but there's, there's elements to this, the action that I, you know, this, this is a director who's known for shooting action and didn't do his homework. You know, he's, he's talking about, it's like, um, there's a great idea, right? We're going to get data aboard the Riemann ship, right? We've got no transporters, so how are we going to do it, right? Explosive decompression, yeah? Blast him out towards the other ship. Great idea, yeah? The only problem with that is um, there's no uh, resistance in space. So he would just keep accelerating. So the distance between the two ships he would be going hundreds of thousands of miles an hour when he hit that ship. <laughs> yeah, which, which was sort of one of the things they got right in Into Darkness to an yeah. extent, wasn't it? Was that um, that propel scene between the two ships. Exactly. And, you know, thinking about the physics of it and stuff. You see, for me, it would be brilliant if they're blasting him out of decompression and he had just punched a hole straight in the ship. It's really brilliant. You know, he's, you know... Uh, all these indestructible alloys, he could punch through the side of the ship. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Sort of given it an element of structure. Or, you know, they're, they're racing a little gunship that's designed to be in space through the ship, the Riemann ship. Well, you know, um, they talked about the, uh, uh, the way that uh, um, the engines work on ships and you can't bring up engines within the magnetic field inside a ship. Yeah, so those ships won't fly in the artificial gravity areas of the ship. So he flies into the ship and it will just stop. Because, you know, it can't fly. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, 
I just silly little elements like that that they just didn't think about. But it was funny. It's like you know another bit of Mad Max in uh, uh, in space. You know, let's drive a vehicle through some nice crowded corridors really fast. Hey, run some people over. I mean, nothing was thought through. Yeah. No, but this this really was the film that killed it because um, this was never supposed to be the last film. I mean, even even though Data dies effectively in this. Um, Apparently, they they'd already developed uh, uh, John Logan had already, you know, developed a fifth film, which was supposed to be the final film for the uh, next gen franchise, which obviously because of the poor performance, it didn't get made. (laughs) Yes, supposedly there were three or four scripts that are flowing out there. There are are two scripts before Nemesis, but they they got canned in favor of Nemesis. I mean, it's. Because it was quite so for Nemesis, what, it's four years gap? Uh, no, I think it was only just two years. Yeah, so I thought this was an insurrection 99. Good question. I don't know. So, um, uh, well, uh, this was 2002, 2002. Yeah, sorry, you're right. Oh, yeah, it's 98. A four year, yes, four yeah. year gap. So it was another big gap. So I, I think that probably had a big impact on, on the I, I think it comes more back to studio again. You know, it's it's probably a film where, you know, the studio goes, right, you've got to get this made, get it made, you've got a very short amount of time and this is your budget. And because, you know, it was two years, two years, two years, two years, and then... Four years. Yeah. Suddenly, yeah. Voyager had ended the year before, so mm-hmm. there was no trek because... Oh, actually, no, um, Enterprise would have begun, wouldn't it? Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. Oh, here's a, here's a fun little aside for you. So uh, I just found out, well, I just found on IMDb, um, Worf's reasons for being in the films. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, as we know, in First Contact, uh, he's beamed from the Defiant, which, which makes, makes sense. sense. Yes. Uh, and then Insurrection, Worf is asked why he's aboard the Enterprise E and away from Deep Space Nine, and his explanation is literally interrupted. So we never find out why. (laughs) That's good writing. And then uh, in uh, Nemesis, um, he had already moved away from Deep Space Nine and was an ambassador. But uh, when he was asked uh, why he wasn't doing his, his... He drunkenly replies that he was not suited for diplomatic life. So he's just there on a bender. (laughs) <laughs> nice nice and it, it was nothing to do with the fact that you know his ex-girlfriend was getting married <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um i mean there's a lot of missed opportunities i mean for the fact is you could have brought back denise crosby's character the her romulan character from the tv series she'd have loved that wouldn't she <laughs> yeah i think she actually petitioned them to to bring her back for it and they well, that, but the connections again is one of the things that i always loved about star trek was that connection trying to bring in uh actors as much as possible to play characters to, to connect it and to connect so you know this is the romulan side the romulans there there's certain characters you know these the vulcans so there's certain vulcan characters and there's the same actors playing the same people and it gives it you know, a sense of this universe is real. Uh, what well, real <laughs> exists, yeah, yeah. works. Um, and I think you're right. I, it's Things like that would have given it an element. But 
it just seems that this was um, is it an episode of Stargate. You know, it's like you don't have to have a reason. You know, you don't have to have an ending. You know, as long as the good guys win, who cares? Mm. Well, until they did Universe, which um, is always, to me, what uh, Voyager should have been. (laughs) Stargate Universe was kind of Uh. what what Voyager should have been. But obviously nobody liked, none of the Stargate fans liked it, hence why it got canned after, you know, two seasons, which was a shame. Well, yes uh, and no. I mean, the, the... I think one of the problems with uh, Universe was the fact that they, even though they were millions of miles in space, they still were able to get back to Earth every week through the uh, the stones. What I liked about Stargate Universe was the fact that it here is a group of people thrown onto a ship. They have no idea how it works and they're having to learn to survive. And that was really, I, I really loved that aspect to it. But the fact was that they could, you know, use the stones to go back to Earth every week and still have interactions with people. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, it was a bit it, for me. It, it sort of took the tension out of it a bit. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, the thing I liked, which is which is, and the reason I brought this up on a Trek podcast is just um, one of. Even though I loved Voyager, one of the things that always bothered me about Voyager was sort of beyond the beyond the you know first few episodes you had this thing where you had the 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 starfleet crew and the marquee crew that had to sort of integrate and get on with each other and uh, you know you were supposed to have things like you know limited supplies and shuttlecraft and torpedoes and all that sort of thing and um you, you know after a few episodes it just became those things were sort of taken for granted and it became like a normal sort of star trek exploration show whereas what what they did really well in Stargate Universe is obviously they sort of take took it was sort of Stargate meets Voyager with a Battlestar Galactica look and feel yeah but they they had that that you had the the military characters and the civilian scientist characters all of which were quite sort of definitely Robert Carlyle's character was morally ambiguous but you had this conflict all the time between them and then you always had problems like you know water supplies and fuel supplies and you know all of this sort of thing and and i kind of always wished even though i loved uh voyager i kind of wished that they played more on that throughout the seasons than i mean they they, they did go there occasionally and hinted it but um but i i felt that uh you know that was one of the missed opportunities and then the other thing i'd like to have seen is i hated the fact with voyager that the very last episode the two-part finale is when they finally get back to Earth. And I and I sort of think it's a shame sort of half a season earlier they didn't get back to Earth and then we could have seen, you know, them dealing with their lives, those characters dealing with their lives and sort of integrating back into Starfleet and whatever would have been way more interesting. No, but, you know, no. hence the Janeway thing from no. this film. No, no, no. The whole point of Voyager was getting home. Once they got oh, home, once they got home, it didn't make it. it didn't matter because their their lives would be back to normal. Well, and that, you that, say that, I mean, they yeah, had a Borg but, character, a really hot Borg character, yeah, but they but, had a Borg, Borg but character. But she had more or less you know, got re- retained her humanity. You know, she was like the their version of Data. Well, I would have liked to have seen that anyway. Yeah, that, I, but there you go. <laughs> and the only reason I mention that is because Janeway, obviously, I've already, I already ruined your 
your mind rape thing <laughs> by, <laughs> by mentioning that Admiral Janeway was in there. <laughs> Who well, we love. Well, supposedly, Jerry Ryan was going to have a part in this film, a bigger part, and she decided not to do it because she didn't want to get typecast. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> We'd have loved that. <laughs> <laughs> but then you think about it, what would she have done? The only thing she may have been able to do was at the end come on and replace data hello i'm your data replacement i'm trying to become more human <laughs> yeah you know well, at the end of the day that's what she was on that show she was their equivalent of data she was, was the person who you know was they can explain what it's like to be human i mean they i mean they they, they did very well out that i thought they that with with her coupled with the doctor, you know, ha- having to be- become his own person as well, I thought, you know, that was one of the interesting things. That was one of the interesting things about Voyager. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that particularly in the first season, I thought Picardo as the doctor was absolutely brilliant. And and to me, the, to me, the doctor always made more sense than data, actually, because when you think about it, the doctor was literally activated in episode one, you, you know, after that disaster when they lost their um, their medical officers, right? So he he his sort of sentience was 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 starting from that episode. Literally, the thing I never quite understood with Data um, is you, you know he'd been serving for several years in Starfleet prior to encounter at Farpoint, yet there was still sort of loads of stuff that it, it was like he'd just been activated for that episode. And, and I always sort of thought that, uh, you, you know, that was a bit odd. Um, but th- then again, you know, he does go on a full journey, as we've, as we've said, with these movies and, and getting his emotions and whatever, which is, which is all good. And, and, and again, th- this was a missed opportunity, I felt, with Nemesis. You, you know, the, the death of Data could have been something really yeah. heart-wrenching but it was it was it was obvious what they were trying to to set up, and and as a result, it just made it like ah, it's it's rough of Khan again, only not as good. Yeah, I, I, this is this is the only thing that sort of has plagued this series of films is that they they do tend to go back to the the ones that work, and instead of trying to do something different. So, with the ending of uh, Nemesis, that uh, you know, the whole idea of of data sacrificing himself to rescue the crew and the universe. You know, we we'd seen it done before, but we'd seen it done so much better. Yeah. And I think this is I think this is a thing they, they, they never quite sort of get when they when they do try and do Rafa Khan was the whole history between Kirk and Spock and that whole incident that the film had been building up to that. I mean the whole idea of, you know, um needs of the many outweighs the needs of the one or the few you know or the one yeah exactly you know <laughs> it, it it was in its dna so when um, that happens totally. it it's, it makes sense but when it happens in these other films it makes no sense at all because they they come out of left field they're not written well they're not then the story is not constructed well they, you don't have the the build up to it it's all of a sudden they expect you to believe something yeah, it feels like fan service almost. Yeah, uh, it, it's and it's a shame. I mean, it's I think movies and, and films have moved on. You know, the stories have to be, you know, um, 
understandable all the way through and believable and just characters have to have depth. You know, Abraham, Abraham's reimagining was just that, you know, it's a triumph, and, you know, bringing life to characters, you know, and, you know, in new bodies, in new actors. Yeah, and until they did Into Darkness and then as soon as Cumberbatch said, I'm Khan, you went, right, well, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And, <laughs> that's, and, and it did. <laughs> as soon yeah. as he said he was Khan, you went, oh, here we go. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, and they they thought, well, well, we'll we'll be clever and we'll 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 flip we'll we'll flip the roles. I mean, it makes no sense that Spock screams out "Con," apart from nah. it being fan service. But unfortunately, um, even Abrams has to service the studios. Um, yeah, and that's that's the nature of it. You know, I, it's, I, I really enjoyed Beyond because it was just, you know, it went in a different direction. Yeah, actually, kudos to Justin Lin, by the way, even though we, we talked about Beyond with, with Charles last on mm. the last podcast. But mm. um, I don't think, you know, you always think about, oh, I should have said this, should have said that, should have mentioned this. And then one of the things I don't think we gave a shout out to, uh, to Justin Lin, who I think I, I know, obviously, Bad Robot and J.J. Abrams and his team were sort of behind producing it but um at the end of the day you know justin lynn was the guy who had to helm this and it was a big departure from from you know what he's what he's normally done and what he's known for and uh i thought i thought he did a really good job with it i have to say brilliant job with it yeah i mean you know i think it's a film you know that's a film that satisfies both sides it satisfies fans and it satisfies you know uh, people who want to go and watch a decent sci-fi movie which no. Nemesis was, but it didn't work on the other side, did it? Nemesis was had the action, but just you have didn't to the action. You know, yeah. it has it has to be it has to be part of the story. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think if you can go back to insurrection, and insurrection is everything interconnects. Everything is nice and smooth and things like that. The problem with that is it's. Nothing's new. Nothing's really exciting. <laughs> Nothing, but it, it's it's wonderfully seamless. It just nice and slips all the way through. I mean, it's it's I I don't know. It's you know perhaps well, it, it's, it's given this to uh, uh, to Frakes. It, yeah. it does what it does what all the good Trek films do, and that is it does deal with 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 our own mortality. You know, that's kind of from 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 sort of Trek two onwards. That's kind of you know always been one of those. Uh, you know, underlying themes, you, you know, to these films. And uh, some some of them have handled it better than others. <laughs> it's like any franchise. I think it's, um, you can't expect every movie to be great. No. Uh, it's just not, it's just not doable. I mean, at the moment, the only people who are sort of doing it are, um, are Marvel with, uh, um, with Disney. Yeah, and, and even they sometimes don't get it right. Exactly. And that, how much money are they putting into those films? How many writers? How many, you know? Well, I, I, I think what happened at the end with the Next Generation films was that there was nobody, there was nobody, there wasn't a guiding hand on the tiller. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, they talk about franchi franchise fatigue as well and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but at the, the end of the day, there was just, it was somebody who was in charge of it who just didn't give a, a, didn't give a damn about it. And so you're going to get a, a lacklustre film. I think the fatigue is definitely an element to it. I mean, you can, you can look at that from Bond. 
you know it's um you had different times where it, it got very lazy and not a lot of thought gone into it so it's like this is a bond film so we only need to do these certain elements and it'd be wonderful rick berman i mean he was obviously dealing with with, with a lot of stuff and at this by this point you know star trek had been on the air constantly for 18 years right with seven of those years being two shows running simultaneously this is on top of the movies and obviously these were always sort of 24 episode seasons as well so um it had been going for a hell of a long time (laughs) the problem the problem with uh i think as well is the syndication system in the u.s meant that Paramount were making more money off the original episodes um, and the first Next Generation episodes and everything that were in syndication than they were on making the films. So the films were literally just to say, boy, Star Trek's still here. And it seemed to be that they didn't really care. You know, you, you know, I want the films to hit certain elements so they're Star Trek and then just gets the name out there so we can still keep making scarily large amounts of money from syndication on our TV series. Previous things. I, it's, it's felt like you know, Paramount had just lost interest as well. Not just the production, you know, the, the production guys, not the directors, not the actors, not the, the actual studio that was running it and paying for it. They really didn't care. I mean, what have they done? What have they done recently? You know, it's they haven't injected pace into it. You know, they haven't injected energy into it. It's basically a young director and his production crew that, you know, basically rebuilt it from scratch again. You know, and then Paramount have picked themselves up and said, oh, we're doing a TV series now as well. Yeah, I think fatigue, Simon, you said fatigue. I think it was. Uh, Everything just went, oh, we've been doing this for so long now. Um, You know, we have no new ideas. It's just money-making machine and the syndication system in the US well and half the world now means that they don't have to make another episode or don't have to make another film um, you know they make more money now off syndication than they ever made off the original selling the original series it's yeah crazy yeah and of course we need to say as well this was Jerry Goldsmith's final score um, because he, he passed away shortly after yeah. uh, recording the, 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 the wonderful score for this. And I think, you know, he, he is certainly one of those composers that uh, over the decades had, had, had shaped Star Trek. Um, I think and- you're right. And if you want to say something really nice about Nemesis, it has a fabulous score. <laughs> it does. Yeah. It does have a fabulous score. There you go. Positive. <laughs> and I think that's a good place to end it. <laughs> I agree. We, 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 it's such a huge subject. We could go on for ages. But, uh, yeah, I think we've sort of uh, done the, 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 the next-gen movies to death here, haven't we? So Yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't think we, we could say any more about it, really. No. Yeah. Well, thank you, Alex, for joining us for this. <laughs> it was fun. Did you have fun with it? Yeah. yeah. I'm sure we'll have you back for something else. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So, Alex, uh, where can we find your work? Um, very good question. Um, there's some of it on my Snake Gully website, um, Snake Gully Productions, um, limited.com. 
And I think there's still a few bits flying around our um, YouTube for some strange and unknown reason, because it's nothing to do with me. Um, yeah, no, most of it's still on my website. Um, yeah, it's probably the best place to find stuff. And are you on, like, social media? Very rarely. Okay. Very rarely. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's the, uh, for me, it's the oxymoron. Uh, uh, the saying it's called it social media. Is, Indeed. Yes. Yeah, you know. <laughs> occasionally i am occasionally i'm on facebook and i'm on linkedin and but it's more of an actually want to actually talk to people and deal with things and um, actually have proper discussions rather than um my everyday bodily functions so. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and are you working on anything in particular at the moment alex um, at the moment i'm just getting back into writing um so i have a couple of sci-fi pieces that I'm just resurrecting at the moment um, and actually uh, a book that I'm starting to rewrite so oh wow okay back into in sci-fi again I think um, yay which I I do enjoy um, so we'll see and Keith where can we find your work yeah if you go to uh, British Isles on YouTube which is spelled E-Y-L-E-S as in my last name there's films there that I've uh, written, produced and directed for your viewing pleasure and Alex has uh, been involved in quite a few of them as well <laughs> <laughs> and as always you can find my work at uh, independentrunnings.com you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher YouTube and all good podcast providers, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, just search Movie Heaven Movie Hell and if you're on iTunes or Stitcher, please leave us a review and a rating so, um, Alex, thank you again for coming on and uh, and talking about Star Trek. It's a pleasure. Thank you. We'll be back. We'll be back with another special on Star Trek, dealing with the uh, movie Star Trek One through Six with the original crew. We will indeed. So, uh, join us for that episode of Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. <laughs>